Um, so, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 21, if you don't mind. While you're finding that one, uh, I, if, if Katie announced this, I didn't hear it. But one announcement that I would make uh, is during that um, busy week and a half where you've got, uh, what all are we doing? I'm drawing a blank. So we've got, uh, what's the first thing? Senior Saints. Yeah, that is a Tuesday. Then Venture. Then Near His Heart. Uh, so the, the Senior Saints is in this room on Tuesday night. The very next night, Wednesday, the normal CBS that night. Um, we haven't done this since 2020, but Laura and I are going to do a relationship talk. So just so y'all know that, you're like, what is that? It's, uh, it's, it's where it's just me and her up here, and y'all can ask whatever you want. Write down a little piece of paper. The best question we've had so far in the years we've done it is, why do all the Lakeview girls only want to date Jesus? That's the question we, we got one time. So anyway, ask away. That's, that's February 15th. Just be thinking of what you want to ask us. Um, all right. Matthew 21. Uh, I said this past Sunday morning that it was good to be back in the book of Romans uh, after a long time away from it over the break. I feel the same about the parables. Um, I, I really loved worship night. We had first week back a couple of weeks ago and then uh, prayer week last week, but I love getting back into the rhythm of things tonight in the parables. And tonight we're going to look at the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants. I hope maybe you were able to read uh, read it this morning. I, I posted it early this morning. Uh, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and um, but we're going to look at the one in, in Matthew twenty one, just because it's the one I picked. Um, it may be a somewhat familiar parable to you. I don't, I don't know, but if not, I hope by the time we, we finish looking at it it, it, it will be. So Matthew 21, let's go ahead and read it together. Uh, I'll read it aloud. You follow along, beginning in verse 33, and it goes through the end of the chapter. Um, Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to, to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our faith that what we just read, every other scripture also that we will um, read tonight, it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And um, Lord, I pray that as we study it tonight, that you would you please give us eyes, it just, just, just like in the passage we, we read uh, at the beginning of our time together from the psalm that talks about idols. They have eyes but do not see. Give us eyes to see the truth of, that Jesus is telling us here in this passage. Please give us eyes to see and minds to understand clearly what he is t- teaching us in this parable. Would you give us hearts to embrace um, and love what he's saying here? Would you give us wills to obey what it admonishes us to do? Would you give me the help that I really need tonight to teach? Would you give us all ears to hear? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is a fascinating parable for several reasons. Um, and there's, I think it's because there's more to it than meets the eye when you first, when you first read it. I, wanted, I want us to try to see if we can get at what Jesus was trying to say to those to whom he was telling this parable and, and sort of what an application might be for us. So if you're taking notes, here's where we're going. I'm going to give it all to you at once, and then we'll go back through it. First, I want us to consider the context, the context, um, the setting of this parable. It's very important uh, to understand the context. Where, when and where Jesus was telling this parable, to whom he told it, the cast of characters in the parable, along with their significance, that's going to be verses 33 to around verse 40, the context. And then... In verses 41 and 42, I want to think about the claim. This is going to alliterate, guys. It's going to be good. Uh, The claim that Jesus makes after he hears their answer. He ends in verse 40 with a question. He's going to hear how they answer it, and he's going to respond to them in verse 41. That's the claim. And then thirdly, the consequence um, that Jesus pronounces to those that he was telling this parable. That's verses 43 to 46. And then finally, um, there's not any particular verses. I'm going to come back and just think, think again about the, the main metaphor that's behind this parable and, and see if we can put some more biblical pieces together and explain what I'm going to call the comfort that every believer can have in Christ. Okay? So that said, let's dive in and think first about the context of the parable and the general outline of it. Um, in order to get the full effect of this parable right here, it's good to remember that, that this, this parable is told at the end of a chapter that began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay? At the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey for the, to begin the last week of his earthly life. Uh, just as Zechariah had promised, in a matter of days he would go to the cross. And, uh, you know, he, you know, thinking back to the triumphal entry, he comes in, uh, you know, fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9, and he comes into, the, into, into town, and they're spreading their cloaks on the road, and they're waving palm branches, 
And the, the, the crowds are following him saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And importantly, for reasons that will be clearer later, so take note, they, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then notice what Jesus does in verse 12 uh, of this chapter. He enters the temple. He rides in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He enters the temple. And it's from there that he first drives out the money changers. But then significantly in verse 23, the, 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 the authorities, the the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the, the, the Pharisees, they challenged Jesus' authority there in the temple. And that's the immediate setting, okay? Because uh, he, he's, he's, in, so he's in Jerusalem for the, the final days before the cross. He's, he's in the temple. He's demonstrated his authority through overturning the money changers. He's having his authority challenged. And the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, they come to him, challenging him. And it's there when he's face to face with them that he tells them to their face two parables. The second of which is what we're looking at tonight. And that brings us to our parable. Look again at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. We'll stop right there. Now, I think it's important that we understand not just the setting, what's going on outside this, like in Jerusalem last week, in the temple, authorities standing there in his face. That's the outside setting. What's the in the, what's the, in the parable context? The in the parable context is... Um, it's a vineyard. <laughs> You're in a vineyard. He, he, there's a master of a house who planted a vineyard. That's the setting of, of, of this one. He plants, plants a vineyard. He hires tenants to work it. Then, uh, then, then servants go in there and, and uh, well, excuse me, tenants go and they take care of it. Servants, he sends servants to go get the fruit. They kill him. More servants. They kill him. Sends the son. They kill him. Uh, we'll back to those details shortly. Maybe you've noticed, if you've read enough of these parables, this is not the only parable that Jesus tells that takes place in a vineyard. In fact, a lot of the parables that Jesus tells happen to take place in a vineyard. Uh, you, you've got this one that we just read and that I just rehearsed again. But before this one, just before this one, you've got the parable of the two sons. That's, that takes place in a vineyard where... where um, they were asked to go work. The two sons were asked to go work in the vineyard. One said no, but later changed his mind and went to work. The other one said, okay, but he didn't ever go to work. And Jesus said that even though the first son initially said no, the fact that he later went, he's justified. The one that said yes, but never did anything, didn't do what he said, it didn't matter. So he, like, he, he, he's not the righteous one. He's basically showing that the prostitutes and the, the sinners were more righteous than, before the, than the Pharisees who didn't obey. But you also have like the parable of the laborers in a vineyard. That's another parable where, remember the people who come, they come to work at different times during the day in the vineyard. And then at the end of the day, they all got paid the same amount. And the ones that were there the longest were like, wait a minute. And basically that was Jesus teaching that anybody gets in, gets in by grace and not by merit, right? But that takes place in a vineyard. 
Or just one more example, the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13, also in a vineyard, fig, fig tree in a vineyard, supposed to be bearing fruit, but for years had not, so he cut it down. Over and over and over again, Jesus tells parables that were set in a vineyard. Why? I mean, I, I, I don't, what was Jesus running out of ideas for settings of his parables? I don't think so. Why always a vineyard? Obviously, he wasn't running out of ideas. There was a real reason that Jesus seemed to always choose a vineyard uh, to, to be the setting of his parables because that was an image used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. There are a couple of prominent examples that I want to point out. I'm going to save one for a bit later, but for now, hold your place here and turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah was an 8th century prophet. He was a contemporary of Hosea and Micah, just in case you were wondering who he was contemporaries with. Hosea and Micah. Anyway, when you find Isaiah 5, look at what we read in verses 1 through 7. It's a beautiful passage. Beginning in verse 1, Let me sing... For my beloved, my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds... That, rain, no, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard, verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, this is important, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. You look for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold an outcry. So surely you can maybe see a similarity between that Old Testament passage and the parable that we're studying tonight. Just think about a couple of the the similarities between it. Uh, in, in, in Isaiah 5, uh, you have a vineyard in both, and, and, a, and, a, and a, a gardener tends to it. Here, the gardener clears it of stones. A wine vat is in it. A tower is in the middle of it. But in our parable, um, there's a fence around it. There's a wine press in it, a tower in the middle of it. But what does Isaiah say that the vineyard represents? He says it again in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But keep in mind the basic point of the metaphor. Why vines? Why a vineyard? Because vineyards and vines are supposed to bear fruit. They're supposed to bear fruit. And by analogy, God expected to see the good fruit of faith and obedience in his people Israel and Judah. Now, keep your bookmark there in Isaiah 5, uh, because we'll come back to it one more time. But turn back to Matthew 21 now. It's this imagery 
and meaning that is behind the parable that Jesus is telling in Matthew 21 to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders of the people. God is the master of the vineyard, Israel, and he's looking for the fruit of faith and obedience he rightly expected. So that's the, that's the first setting of this parable that Jesus tells. It's, 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 a, it's in a vineyard, but what happens? He says, the master of the vineyard, that's God, had left oversight of his vineyard to tenants. Who might the tenants be in this parable? Um, well, the people he's talking to were not stupid. If you look down in verse 45, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees knew that he was talking about them. They were the tenants in this parable. And so, back to the story. Jesus said the master of the vineyard sent servants to the vineyard to go collect fruit from it. Over and over they went. Some were beaten, some were stoned, some were killed. Who might the servants be? If the vineyard is Israel and the tenants are the, the leaders, the, the Pharisees, the, the elders of the people, the, the, the chief priests, if they're, the, if they're the, 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 the tenants, who might the servants be? Well, in, 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 in the, this context and in context of other scriptures, it's clear that the servants represent prophets, the prophets who went into Israel throughout their history. The prophets went in to call the people to faith, to repentance, to obedience. They're calling, trying to call forth that fruit of obedience and faith that God expected. But what is the history of what is the history of what the leaders did to those prophets when they came? Let Hebrews 11 tell you. Hebrews 11, verses 35 to 38. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. That's what happened to the prophets. In Matthew 23, just in, the, in a couple of chapters later, Jesus would say in verse 35, of what, he would say what they did to all the prophets. On, on, he told the leaders, On you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you mort, murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That's the story of the servants. But as Jesus finishes his story, the master of the vineyard says in verse 37 that he would send his son. Because surely the tenants, i.e. the leaders of Israel, wouldn't reject his son clearly representing the Messiah. So Jesus is clearly identifying himself as the Son of God and the Messiah that they were expecting. But in verses 38 and 39, they see the Son coming and they kill him too. Now it's worth remembering, just, just imagine, what, <laughs> imagine what you're reading here. Jesus is telling this parable days before the cross. He, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's about to go to the cross. And so in this parable, he is prophesying his death before it happens. You're going to kill the son, like he tells them. But Jesus, to this point in the story, Jesus hasn't been specific with them in the telling of this story. In the sense that he hasn't explicitly told them what each character represents, though he knows they know. Um, they, they get it, but he's left it metaphorical for them. 
And so he asks them in verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? It, it's very similar, by the way. I told you to hold your place in Isaiah 5 to the question that God put to them in verse 4 of Isaiah 5. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why is there no good fruit? That can't be. I want you to... I, I haven't said this phrase in a long time, but I, I'll say it again now. It will really help you, I think, when you read passages like this, to read it autobiographically. What do I mean by read it autobiographically? I mean re read it as if you were there. Read it as if, it's, as if you were in that episode. You were in that crowd. Okay? And it's, it's, it's helpful in situations like this because it helps you to visualize that in this parable, okay, where is Jesus when he told this parable? In the temple. Like, who is standing right in front of his face? The Pharisees, the elders, the scribes, the, 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 the chief priests. And we also know um, that there was a crowd around them. We know that from earlier in the chapter. And so Jesus, standing there in the temple, in front of the Pharisees, in front of the scribes, in front of the chief priests and the elders, him and them, and a, and a crowd around them, he puts this question to them. What will, what, the question is verse 40, what will, the, what therefore, when the owner comes, what will he do to those tenants? They know exactly what he's saying. They know that he just told that whole story about them they know what he's asking. They know what he's insinuating about them. But they don't want to admit to all the people who are around them listening in. They don't want to admit. So in verse 46, verse 46 said a crowd had gathered to listen to this confrontation. I mean, I just, it's hard to imagine as we, as we consider how the Pharisees answer Jesus' question and, and, and what Jesus then says to them. We're going to move to the claim that Jesus makes. We're hopefully clear on the context here, where it sort of reaches a crescendo when Jesus asks this question. So Jesus put the question to them. I mean, the, the air had to be thick with tension. I, I don't know that we can appreciate it. I mean, like, he's in the temple with the, with the authorities of the day, and I don't think it was a crowd far off. I think it was a crowd pressed in. I visualize like a crowd, a quiet crowd pressed in because it's almost like this is the moment we were waiting for, right? Jesus and the Pharisees, and he's asked them, right? And having just told this scathing story against them, asking them, you're the tenants, what should be done with you? What should be done with you? And the quiet crowds are pressing in to hear the answer. The, the, the Pharisees are not about to admit with the crowds listening in that they understand what Jesus is talking about. They're not going to admit that. So they play innocent. And they say in verse 41, Oh, 
He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let, let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them their fruits. Those wretches, whoever they are, those wretches, not us. <laughs> Jesus said, what should we do with those tenants? Oh, them? Yeah, wretched in for them. The ball is now back in Jesus' court. And he just lays it out plainly. Everybody's listening, and he says in verse 42, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, he's quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. That's important. He's quoting Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Why is that important? Because remember that this is happening right after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And what were the crowds crying as he entered in? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. Same psalm. And in Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16, the chief priests and the scribes, if you look early in the chapter, the chief priests and the scribes heard them saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were mad about it. They were indignant, and they told Jesus to put a stop to it. Jesus, when he says, Have you not read the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? When, when Jesus, when he says, the, the, he's saying the crowds, he's telling the Pharisees right here, the crowds are rejoicing in the cornerstone, the very cornerstone that the builders, the chief priests, the Pharisees were rejecting. Jesus literally asks them, Have you never read that? He is basically saying, in front of all the crowds that have gathered around for this conversation, he's basically saying in front of all those people, did you not know that that was talking about you? You're in the Bible and not in a good way. That's what he's telling them. That's the claim that Jesus makes to them. And now he lays out the consequence. Jesus gets very blunt with them in verses 43 and 44. Again, it's right in front of the listening crowds. It's hard to imagine the, the humiliation that Jesus is heaping on the chief priests and the Pharisees. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He drops all metaphor. I'm not talking about tenants anymore. I'm talking about you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus isn't pulling any punches. He, he just told those who were supposedly the, 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 the religious and the spiritual leaders and the superiors of the people that things are going eternally, verily bad for them. To reject Jesus is to reject all hope of salvation. And that's the consequence for them. That's consequence for all who reject Christ. And verse 45 says, They understood exactly what Jesus was saying, but they showed it not one bit because of the crowds, according to verse 46. They, they just pretend they didn't hear what they just heard. They certainly wouldn't, wouldn't admit that Jesus was right about them, and they weren't about to arrest him because they were afraid of the crowds. So Jesus took the kingdom away from those who would rather trust in their own goodness than to add, uh, for, for God's favor and blessing than to repent. That's a bad route to take. 
Before we finish, though, I want to, I think it's worthwhile rounding this out to seeing how I, we can read this, and at least I can, and the Pharisees are always the bad guys. They're always the bad guys. And, 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 and it's, it's easy to read this and say, it's, it's easy to read the, the stories like these and do exactly what the Pharisees did in this parable. The, what the Pharisees did when he says, what should I do with those tenants? And they said, oh, them? They deserve this. When, when we read this, we always see the Pharisees as a them over there. As those guys. I have a, I have a feeling that if we met them, we might be far more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. Uh, that we're more, at, at least as much like the Pharisees as we are the crowds who are pressing in. And so what I'm getting at is, if the kingdom didn't come to them, how does it come to anybody? How does it come to anybody? How does it come to me? How does it come to you? And that's why I want to end this time thinking about the comfort that Jesus gives also through this vineyard metaphor. Think about that with me quickly as we close. How can any sinner, how can any sinner, even the most righteous in this story, missed it? How can any sinner expect to inherit the kingdom of God? If the vineyard metaphor represents Israel, who were disobedient and missed it, what hope do we have if we have a nature just like theirs? Because sometimes when God refers to, here, here's where I'm going to dovetail it. When, when God, sometimes when God refers to Israel, he refers to Israel as a special vineyard. We've seen that. He also refers to them as a son. As a son, S-O-N. He's their father, they are his son. Uh, turn over to Psalm 80 really quickly. I think it's the last time I'll ask you to turn. Don't hold me to it. Psalm 80. And when you get to Psalm 80, look first at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verses 7 and 8 says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then look at this imagery. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So there's vineyard language again. He's describing Israel as this vine, as this vineyard that God planted. Saying, restore us, because this was written later, because they had been so disobedient. But now look down to verses 14 and 15. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, this vine, the stock that your right hand has planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. This vine and the son. This isn't talking about two different things. He's calling Israel two different things, a vine that he planted and his son. And God had first called Israel his son right before he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He told Moses in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Go to Pharaoh, and there it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God says Israel is like his son. They're his special people out of all the, 
nations of the earth, and they're like a vineyard that he planted. He gave blessing to it, the vines in his vineyard that would bear fruit. And if they did that, they would continue in his blessing like a father to a son in his special vineyard. But we know the history. They didn't obey. We know our history. Nobody does. No one does good, Romans 3. All have sinned, not even one does good. But not only does Jesus in our parable tonight, I lied, you can go back to Matthew 21. Um, Not only does Jesus in our parable tonight present himself as the son, he is the son in the parable, claiming to be the true son of God. But he would, if you think think about another gospel, he would in this... In this same week, just a couple of days later, tell his disciples in the upper room, in John 15, 1, they would t- he would tell his disciples, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Israel was like God's son. Jesus is the son of God. And Israel was the vine in God's vineyard, the one that he expected the fruit of obedience, which is true of also for us, but Jesus is the true vine, who perfectly obeyed the will of the Father his whole life. Because Jesus is the true vine, as we've said many times, when he, come, when he came to be our Savior, he didn't come just to die in our place, but to be obedient as our substitute before God as well, to live our life and to take our death, so that when he rose from the dead, he could give to everyone who believes the complete forgiveness of their sins, and a righteousness to be clothed in that we stand in before God. That's how anybody receives the kingdom. That's the comfort of every believer. The Pharisees missed it because they, because they were disobedient, yes, but they were still content to trust in their own goodness as they saw it. But Jesus offers the kingdom to anybody who repents and trusts in the one who was sent in their place. Let's pray.